everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our transparency work and accountability work at chicagojustice.org. Pay attention to that site. We're publishing a lot of research. We'll have another piece dropping most likely, I think, on Thursday morning around the Freedom of Information Act. It's really going to blow you away about some of the responses we got. We sent the same... Um, we sent the same request to all to like seven justice agencies and it's remarkable how different the requests are and how ridiculous the denials are even though they're mandated to keep the document that we requested by law okay on today's show we feature a interview with david greasing from the better government association their executive director on a piece he wrote about um Basically, the justice system, how they're all pointing fingers at each other. Then, after that, we were going to talk about a New York Times article about uh, rape and how hard it is to prosecute. Uh, piece from the Hill, on, from the Vera Institute Executive Director, Nick Turner. And then we're going to talk about the ridiculousness of the mayor's staff taking off the 4th of July weekend and the days leading up to it. Yes, crazy. But forced. Forced. But first talk to you about our day of action. We are announcing the target today. That target is the Chicago Police Department. We have been in litigation with the Chicago Police Department over three, about three and a half years. A mind-boggling amount of time. So, this day of action, we're going to tweet storm the police department to get them to give us the analysis. The big thing we're still fighting for is an analysis they say they did to support the thousand man hire that Rahm Emanuel did in September of 2016. The supposedly the police department announced they need, we need officers, but Rahm Emanuel was behind that. And they then had command staff go to the city council and say, we did a top to bottom analysis. Did they? They've been fighting almost three and a half years to keep us from accessing that analysis. They've lost in court time and time and time again and still refuse to turn it over. So we are going to target them with our inaugural day of action. It is on the 12th. If you want more information, you can go to Chicago or cjpnation.org or drop something in the comments right now in any of the platforms you're watching us and we'll hook you up. Drop us your email or hit us up at info at chicagojustice.org. Any of that works, and we'll get you hooked up and plugged into that. Help us demand transparency from the justice system in Chicago and around the country. We're here in D.C., soon to be in Maryland. Become a part. Help us do our work. Okay. Hopefully you can join us on that. Let's get to um, our first segment today. It's an interview with David. It runs around 24 minutes. It's really fascinating. He wrote a really interesting piece. Once again, if you listen on the podcast, you can get all the links to all the visualizations and the videos are all posted on our website when the podcast gets posted. If you're watching live now, if you got any comments or questions about anything in the show, drop them in the, the chat, whatever platform you're on, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and I'll, put, I'll include them. If you got questions about the interview, the video runs 25 minutes. It was pre-canned earlier. We don't have the technology right now 
to do live interviews on the show. So the interviews are being canned ahead of time. There was canned earlier today, but I'm happy to answer any questions you have about it afterwards. Okay, so um, it, let me just say it's a really interesting PC road, especially because they're technically not really in the police justice reform business. That's not what the Better Government Association does. So it was really, I thought, a really interesting peak. He's been a journalist a long time in Chicago. So I, thought, I just think it was a really interesting take. I think the interview was really fascinating. And I'll have some comments afterwards. I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Chicago's Justice Show. Today, we are wel uh, we're welcoming David Greising from the Executive Director of the Better Government Association, an organization. Oh, my God, 25 years ago, I was an intern at. God, am I old that I get to say that. Mr. Greising, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. Great, great to be with you. And it's always great to see former BGA interns go on to bigger and better things. Yes, um, <laughs> I, it was an incredible education at that time. Um, yeah. So I want to talk to you, your, uh, I guess, a, a column you wrote for the website, BGA's website, it's called Finger Pointing Isn't a Crime Fighting Plan, Mayor. And I appreciate that because I have, and I appreciate some of the insight in the column, I have been, what I think is like screaming into the wind about whether or not there's data. And I know you bring it up about, uh, one of the lines I love in this piece is, leaders need to start from a reliable set of facts. And, you know, I, I, I think Trump, Trumpism and the Trump time has helped accelerate how people don't believe in facts and they can argue facts and, and data and they can argue against it. And unfortunately, at least in my perspective, um, well, let me get to this. Are we in a point where we're, you know, I know you're talking a little bit in the column about data versus data, but is it, is it data from Fox and Evans? Is it data coming from the mayor and the superintendent to counter it, their arguments? because they seem to be screaming at them, but I'm not sure they're providing any data to counter what Evans and Fox are putting forward. No, they're, they're arguing using anecdotes and, and anecdotes are popular in part because a compelling anecdote can drown out uh, the data in sort of public discourse, but it's really important to go beyond anecdotes and dig into what does the data show us. And frankly, uh, while Tim Evans, the chief judge of Cook County Courts, uh, has put forward data. There have been studies out that have questioned whether or not that data is any good. And um, uh, there are legitimate arguments using uh, the arrest records, et cetera. But to just use anecdotes is, is not adequate when you're uh, providing a critique of the entire uh, criminal justice system in Cook County. Yeah, and it bothers me is what I, what I try to tell people is like, you have to remember, David Brown runs, runs an organization that has 1.7 billion at its disposal. And if he's not putting out facts and in, in, in the massive data, being able to show results to counter arguments, that's a, to me alone, that's a very telling fact that they're, that they're using anecdotes rather than long-term data. They, the research and development, and I know they changed the name of it, but that's what I'm going to always call it, the office and the CPD, they have PhDs in there. Yeah. They have data coming out of their minds. I don't understand why we're not seeing a data for data argument. Is it, you think it's just merely because they're trying to win the media? I, I think they're busy scrambling, trying to come up with a, uh, an approach on the streets that is more effective than the one that they've deployed. Uh, it is odd that since the data, when you do dig into it, does seem to support their arguments, 
uh, it's odd that they're not using more data. You know, as an example, uh, the Tribune uh, did a study of early release defendants uh, saying 21 defendants uh, accused of murder uh, after early release in, in the time period studied by the Tribune. There's a University of Utah Law School study out that talks about uh, violent crime being up by 33% uh, from uh, uh, people out on pretrial release. So there is data out there that that would be effective. And, and as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of PhDs, et cetera, in the Chicago Police Department. Chicago Police Department works closely with the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a deep data house. And um, if CPD is interested in digging into relevant data sets, they certainly have the resources at their disposal. I just think they're uh, they're going based on it would appear based on their public statements, they're going based on their guts and not on what is the data telling them. It's pretty scary to me to be running any kind of large organization like that in 2021 and not using data to drive a lot of what you're talking about. Um, so let's get and to Tracy, them. Just, just to clarify, yeah. we don't know that they're not using data. I, I would expect that they are digging into data. They're just not doing a very effective job of using the data to make a compelling public argument. Right. And that's just as important. It, it doesn't matter that much if they have data in-house and it maybe it's informing some decisions. A big part of this is informing the public in a way that changes behavior uh, or maybe even changes policy or influences the decision of uh, Kim Fox in the state's attorney's office. Uh, and so by, by relying pretty much strictly on uh, an anecdote, uh, they're foregoing the opportunity to really persuade the public and even persuade their counterparts in other offices of, of government. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I don't know if it's there, why they're not using it. Um, if I, I know, and we'll get to it, Brown has been questioned. Well, the, let me back up and say Fox and um, the new public defender whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, so we're talking about the two studies, one from the crime lab and one from Loyola University. The professors from Loyola have been on my show talking about how that doesn't, um, they have data that shows it isn't people out on bail, on bond reform um, because it started in 2016. As you mentioned, it's a little hard to believe that would be solely responsible for what's going on in 2020. Um, and I, you know, you get these responses from Brown. Well, I just don't feel, I, I, I know what I feel and I know what I'm, and it's just like, <laughs> how, how do you think that's going to win an argument with the public? I, I know, I know better than these professors do. Well, no, no, it's not persuasive. Um, I don't doubt that David Brown sincerely believes what he says he feels, but that's not adequate when you're running a huge, one of the nation's largest uh, police departments. And when you are engaging in a public debate about bail reform, if he really believes that bail reform is at the is a root cause of the uh, street violence that he is failing to uh, effectively address, then he, I think he owes it to the public to make that case far more persuasively than just singling out a few, uh, a few anecdotes. Those anecdotes are very compelling. And, and yeah. uh, there's no doubt that uh, there are instances where people with ankle bracelets are committing violent crimes. But in a city this large, a handful of cases is not enough to uh, win the argument over whether the, that risk, the risk of people with ankle bracelets committing crimes is 
is a bigger risk or, or bigger problem for the city than thousands of people being locked up uh, for, you know, in some cases, very um, thin reasons and robbing them and their families of, of their opportunity to be together, robbing them of their jobs, just kind of continuing adding to further to the problems on the streets. Uh, that's a legitimate public debate. And it's not, you're not doing your job if you're not engaging that debate uh, in a meaningful way. And arguing through the use of a handful of anecdotes is not a meaningful engagement in the public policy debate. Speaking of meaningful engagement, you, you, know, you talk about in your column about how the mayor had this whole government approach and she was going to you know, invite violent crimes involving the schools, libraries, family support services. It just seems to me, despite the rhetoric from the mayor, and maybe they have put some money into those things, we don't ever seem to have a mayor that can put a long-term plan in place and then follow it. Well, right, we, we haven't. Um, and just in the, in the brief time that Mayor Lightfoot has been in office, um, there's been discussion of uh, community policing a couple of different times. Uh, David Brown was brought in with de-escalation as being kind of the magic formula to kind of reduce violence. Uh, he has recommitted to community policing uh, and the whole of government approach, which Mayor Lightfoot first talked about it as a candidate and now most, you know, for the first time really seriously talked about it uh, heading into this summer. Um, it has, there's sort of a flavor of the month kind of feel uh, to some of this that, that um, you know, you, you can't, uh, you can't just test these things in a very short period of time, and then when it doesn't immediately work, move on to something new. Uh, put yourself in the uh, shoes of a police officer out on the streets. Uh, when one month, when this new police chief comes in, he's talking all about de-escalation, then he's talking about community policing, then he's talking about um, this whole of government approach. How do you, what orders are you taking and how does that change your day-to-day -day work out on the streets? How does the whole government approach engage with uh, the state's attorney's office, for example, when the mayor is jousting with the state's attorney uh, over the question of um, whether CPD is, is actually arresting enough people to put into the system or she's releasing too many people back onto the streets? It, it's just not, um, it's not a very constructive situation right now. And it could well start with the mayor, the, the head of the courts, Tim Evans, uh, the state's attorney's office, uh, all getting on the same page, which they most clearly at this point are not. They are not. And it's, I have been repeatedly annoyed. So Kim Fox did this webinar for journalists. Her office did this webinar for journalists. And they were showing them how to use the data on their data portal and what the data said. So Kim Fox comes out and says, okay, we're, we have a skyrocketing rate at which we're arresting people with uh, for gun possession. We went from 300 in 2013 to last year we were at 1400 and this year we're supposed to be even higher. And she comes down with the incredible statistics like only 20% of the gun possession arrests are getting, the guns themselves are being tracked back to violent crime. And at the same time, we have a plummeting rate at which you're closing cases where there was actual gun violence. And so I was, I was like, wow. Now that yeah. to me was hard hitting. And then I was like, okay, mayor, okay, superintendent Brown, respond. 
Like God knows how much money Lifeway's got at her feet. And superintendent, you have a $1.7 billion agency respond to that. And they couldn't. And they went to this petty bickering. And it's like, wait a minute. She put hard facts out. I don't care whether you like them or not. That's irrelevant. Can you counter them? Yeah. Well, and David Brown is focused a lot on the number of uh, handguns that have been uh, that have been recovered by the police. Um, you know, it's a it's a good thing to get guns off the streets. There, there's no doubt that it's uh, part of uh, the whole solution to do so. But he is not provided. Going back to what we the critique that we're involved in with regard to the data sets, he has not been able to connect the dots and say we've taken X number of guns off the streets, and therefore uh, criminals don't have guns in their hands. Uh, there's no proof of that. Uh, therefore, violent crime is going down. Well, obviously, uh, that's not happening. So it's probably good that they're taking guns off the streets, but um, it would be better if they were, uh, even better, if they were investing their time in tactics that demonstrably reduce violent crime at a time when uh, homicides, for example, in the first half of the year were up 40% over 2020, which itself was a significant uh, uptrend from the prior year. So uh, it would be good to see them focused on tactics that actually they can demonstrate measurable direct impact on the problem that people are addre- are dealing with on a daily basis in, in the neighborhoods. It's been interesting to me, and I want to know how you feel about this. I have always felt like the police get too much blame when crime goes up because it may be out of their ability to, to control. Because like maybe they had a really good year of preventing crime because it would have went way up if they weren't doing what they were doing. But they also get too much of the credit when it goes down. And I think they built themselves into a hole. Like in the, from the early 90s to like 2015, I, except for a year or two in, in different places, crime kept ticking down all over the country. And every superintendent was the flavor, use your term, the flavor of the year superintendent. Look, everything I'm doing is working. And I think we're in a position now where crime goes up and they will do anything possible, anything that comes to their mind because they're trying to win the media cycle to start reducing the numbers, regardless of its long-term impact also. Um, So I wanted just to get your feelings on that. Well, you know, they are very focused on messaging. um, And and I guess it's not surprising. They are, uh, you know, the, the superintendent does work for the, mayor who is an elected official. Likewise, uh, Kim Fox is doing everything she can to avoid being held responsible for any increase in crime. Um, There is a lot of politicking going on here. Um, Some of the more uncomfortable moments we've witnessed, um, uh, I remember being at a um, uh, press conference where Kim Fox and Mayor Lightfoot were together after the initial round of uh, disturbances following the death of George Floyd, where the mayor had spent the whole weekend blaming Kim Fox uh, for putting people back out on the streets. And Kim Fox, of course, had defended herself. And then the two of them were trying to show a united front and saying, we have a plan for fighting crime. What I wanna know is like, what is that plan? How is it going? What is the progress? How are you adjusting as new data comes in? And are you, is there any path toward uh, Chicago uh, seeing a decreasing trend in, in, as opposed to a, a sharply increasing trend in violent crime? Yeah, I really don't think there is a plan. I'll be completely honest with you. I think for a lot of big city chiefs, 
um, and chiefs all over the country, big city, especially, you know, and you mentioned this in your column, like crime has been up with the pandemic, especially violent crime all over the country. And 25% uh, nationwide increase in homicides, uh, 2021 over 2020. Yeah. Right. And to me, like I saw, as a criminologist, I saw the as, the, as we started locking down, we locked down, I'm in DC, we locked down March 13th, Friday night of March 13th, 2020. I saw that and I was like, oh, here, we're going to have a perfect storm. And as I, as they, I saw, as you saw Scandinavia, Canada, to an extent, a lot of Europe, and they just started pushing money to people, right? Pushing money to people like, holy shit, we've got this is going to lead to really bad things in our country, and we got to keep people from un, from being a massive unrest. Then George Floyd hit, and I was like, "Oh, it, it, this is nothing but bad." And obviously, we didn't have the leadership in Washington to do, to do that. But I, I saw the storm coming. Um, I'm a little. I'm. I think what Mayor Lightfoot and Brown are hoping is that as the pandemic wanes, as we all thought it was going to, but it's starting to peak back up. But if the fall, if the when cold weather comes and hopefully the pandemic wanes, things start going back to normal. I really think that's their long-term strategy right now. Well, um, just like the column said, finger pointing is not a strategy. Neither is hope. <laughs> is hope a strategy? Uh, you know what? What I would like to see is. This whole whole of government idea, it, which is unfortunately to this point been more of a slogan than, than a strategy, I would really like to see that played out for us. This is how it works. This is the way this integrated approach works. These are the results we expect to see. And these are the measurable outcomes that we will track over time. That's the way a well-run city would approach uh, a strategic initiative like this. And other than um, uh, announcing this prior to the, the summer season, when violence, not just in Chicago, but in big cities across the country, violence does rise during the summertime, uh, we, we really have not heard back from the mayor or the city as to how's, how that's going. And that, that, uh, that's what lends itself to this notion, the, the, the flavor of the month kind of notion that, that I'm talking about. Uh, we don't see a consensus consistent um, commitment and messaging uh, database reports about how about any success, which then leaves us to wonder, well, maybe there isn't any success. So maybe you have to do have to move on to a new tactic uh, sometime soon. Yeah, it's, it's a very, um, you're right, it's about the flavor of the week. And I, I they keep, at least in my opinion, they keep falling over themselves, they keep tripping over themselves I mean, it's a Chicago police department. We've all been here and there are a lot of good cops. So I'm not like bashing the whole department, but we're all, there's always a clock on when the next scandal involving a bad shooting, a bad event is going to happen in Chicago. And um, you have to have a plan to be able to weather it all. Um, that's systematic. I, I think I was always of the view that when Lori got in and I, I know Mayor Lightfoot, but I was like, we'll know in our first budget what happens to tax increment financing? What happens to that program? If that, yeah. all, if, if that fundamentally gets changed and we see real investment in these communities, we're going to see, then we're going to see the change. I think she upped ROM's anti-violence money from 5 million to 36. And yeah, that's great. But how much is 31 million additional? Let's say she upped to 36 million. Now, what is 36 million going to do on the South and West sides? All of it. No. 
No, you're right. And, and uh, I think study after study indicates it's more than a, just the, the source of these problems is far larger than just throwing more police out on the streets, or yes. more children, et cetera. Right. Um, that said, uh, um, we're not going to cure the problem. All of, all of, the, all of the inputs to, to the increase in violent crime are not going to be cured by any municipal government. Um, the whole government approach sounds interesting because it's at least putting a variety of resources out there. For example, as one example, um, mental health uh, issues are at the a root cause of, of mm -hmm. a lot of crime on the streets and violent crime included. Um, if, if a city effectively addresses its crime problem by having trained mental health professionals, social workers and others out engaged with the police, actively identifying cases, proactively identifying them, intervening before something leads to a violent episode, uh, that could be effective. Um, and you're not going to cure the problem of mental health per se through government programs, but you can more effectively manage uh, that problem as regards the impact it has on a city. And we're not seeing much of a sign that in this whole government approach, we're not hearing reports that this is effectively being managed. No, I agree. You knew it was a problem when Ron went to, or Daly went to close the mental health clinics, and then I think Ron closed more, was yeah. when Second City Cop Log, um, which I consider kind of alt-right at times, um, said, oh my God, what are you doing? You don't need to close them. You need to double them. Even they were like, wait a minute, you're leaving all of us on our feet. Like, honestly, take the TIF money, open mental health and social work community places in every community people yeah. shouldn't have to leave their community to get treatment and get help and have someone to go to turn to um and to me it's a lot cheaper but it's just getting the courage to change the fundamental economics of the city and where the city it's we, we have we still haven't obviously we still haven't found the person to do that no and, and when you look at um you know the, the police to consent to, the consent decree that uh this the city now is operating under a court monitor consent decree as regards to uh, the problems in the Chicago Police Department, institutional bias and other issues. Um, one of those is, uh, one of those objectives is to be more effective in dealing with mental health related issues. And it's not surprising that that Second City Cop is, as I think you've fairly described that organization. Um, let's not forget whatever their politics are, these, these are beat cops by and large. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and they're speaking of their own experience. It is anecdotal. So the same critique that we applied to David Brown earlier probably applies to them, but, but anecdotes have their own compelling truth to them. Yep. And if, if you're hearing from that subset of the police force saying, oh, you know, my goodness, this is going to have a very negative effect uh, if you cut back these resources, it probably ought to be listened to. I'm not, it shouldn't necessarily be the basis of policy, but it shouldn't be ignored. It should be looked into and included as policymakers make their resource allocation decisions. Yeah, this is, we need, we need long-term plans. We've been fighting. We've both been in Chicago many years, probably many more doing what we're doing than we want to admit now. And yeah. it just seems like it's, it's rinse repeat here. There's slight changes, but it's rinse repeat on almost all of the policies and the tactics. Well, and, and Tracy, one, one, of the, one of the reasons that uh, Lori Lightfoot as mayor has disappointed so many of her supporters was that there was a sense of her coming in, giving her 
background on the police board and law enforcement that she really implicitly understood some of these issues. Mm -hmm. And um, she's not shown much of an effort or, or not, I no, I, she's not shown an, an intuitive ability to take the experience she has and translate that into effective policy, which is a, which is a, a good reason to be disappointed. Um, I think she's well-intentioned. I think she does understand these issues in a way that maybe Rahm Emanuel probably did not uh, or Richie Daly before him, uh, but she hasn't been able to effectively translate that into uh, policy that is really having any sort of beneficial effect on people in the neighborhoods about whom she cares a great deal. Yeah, I, I agree. That's We're going to leave it there because that's the perfect way to say it. That's, I agree. Uh, I think we we're all expecting more because she does fundamentally understand these things, but translating that into policy and action in the city um, hasn't happened. All right, David, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Tracy, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be with you and good luck with the rest of your show. Okay, so we're back. A really, fundamentally really interesting conversation. And I think David is right. I think he's very right in that I don't think it's that Lightfoot doesn't care. I I have been, is anyone who watches this channel and watches the show knows I was friends with Lori Ish um, prior to her becoming mayor, prior to me moving to D.C. I don't know what's happening. The ability to, I'm, some degree, I do believe that there is a lack of will to do what really needs to be done. What need, what really needs to be done is a massive rearrangement and reallocation of city finances to address what's the circumstances in underserved communities that are propelling and motivating the violence. That's the only way we're going to see long-term systemic change. Now, Will that happen? I'm not expecting. I haven't had it in the first two years of Lori. Now, give her some credit or give her a pass a little bit in that she's had, what, 18 months? Five and 12, 17 months of pandemic. But her first budget didn't show any really innovative thinking that she was in, in any will to rearrange the finances of the city to address what really needs to be done in these communities. So that's that part. Secondly, let me say this. When we get on the conversation about bail reform, ladies and gentlemen, and bond reform and whether what the judges are doing and what prosecutors are doing and the impact on violence, the fact that a $1.7 billion police department cannot provide you detailed evidence of the impact of the activity of the judges and the courts and the prosecutors, they can't provide you that data, is a telling sign that the data probably doesn't exist. Because David Brown, and I'm going to back that up in a couple of weeks with research we're dropping on him. He loves to manipulate the media. He loves to manipulate data. He loves to use data to manipulate things. That was his history in Dallas. He's doing it in Chicago. If they had that data, they would be providing it. The fact that Lightfoot can't do it and Brown can't do it, it shows you something. Susan Lee, her deputy chief of staff last summer resigned because well, we don't know exactly why, but it certainly didn't help that the mayor and the superintendent starting in 2019 and continuing refused 
to stop saying it was the courts and bail reform when they had no data to do it. And when activists wanted to bring data to the police to show it was in Chicago Cred and other organizations like that, Ready Chicago, CP4P, and they wanted to bring the data to the, the CPD and say, see, it isn't bail reform. The CPD wanted no part of it. Of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. So those are all signs to show you that it most likely isn't bail reform or bond reform or judges or what they're doing. Um, some of the alt-right media, alt-right political operations disguised as media are starting to collect numbers on how many people that are out on electronic monitoring or out on bail are committing reoffenses, And they're collecting numbers and they think there's a lot. The, the numbers they're collecting are actually going to prove the case of bail reform not having a major impact. I don't know why they're doing it. The numbers they're collecting are not going to help them. They keep releasing them online and Twitter, and you're like, that ain't open. If you think it is, keep publishing because you're just going to be made fools of, and we're going to be able to do that very easily. Okay. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you're watching right now, drop a comment or a question if you have one in the comments at any of the platforms, and I'll try to include it in the show. Right now, I'm going to give you uh, one minute of information on our nation program, cjpnation.org. And you get all the information about crowdsource research project, becoming a social media ambassador, taking part in our day of action on the 12th against the Chicago Police Department. You can do all of that. Please do. CJPNation.org will be back in one minute. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, uh, prosecuting rape out of New York Times article. We're going to talk about a. Uh, Editorial in the Hill by Nick Turner at the Vera Institute, who, by the way, I also happen to know, but from an internship from forever ago, and he does not remember me. And then we're going to close with the stupidity of the mayor's office take, letting her staff go on vacation over the 4th of July weekend when she's canceling days off and putting 12-hour shifts for the police. Okay, we'll be back in one minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. So we're going to talk about a New York Times article titled, No One Believes Me, How Rape Cases Get Dropped. Now, yes, this mostly, and I bring in some national stuff um, from time to time on the show. This talks about uh, what's going on in, in, in New York. It translates very easily to what's going on in Chicago, but also around the country. This is a very, very sensitive, but yet very, very, very important topic. Right? And it gets very little play from the media. Very little coverage. We may have a report on that soon, actually. But um, very little coverage. And so I think it's very important um, we know, just to give you a little hint about how this is done in Chicago, we did a study, such as it was, on case statuses for, you know, 
just in aggregated numbers from Chicago, from 911 Chicago Police Department and, and the prosecutor's office. And we FOIA'd aggregate data. And the police department, almost all the cases were closed. Um, or, or they weren't closed. What was the status? They were suspended. I'm sorry, that's it. Suspended, waiting on new information. And it turns out they hardly ever charge or seek charges out in the prosecutors have hardly ever charge acquaintance cases. Almost never. It's very murky about what goes on in these cases. We tried under Anita Alvarez and Rahm Emanuel and Gary McCarthy. We tried with the Rahm's office and Preckwinkle's offices as co-chairs of the task force to study five years of sexual assault case processing data from 911 call through adjudication or disposition of the case or termination of the case. We had like 25 violence against women organizations, community organizations, uh, uh, business leaders, Policymakers, uh, Scott Wagas, Pack, Jesus Garcia, who then was a county commissioner, and Barbara Flynn Curry, who was a state rep and was in Mike Madigan's you know, leadership office. They were all in the task force. And we couldn't get the CPD and the state's attorney under Anita Alvarez. Jen Green now works at Lifespan. Um, she killed that. Her and the police department got together and decided if neither one of them gave data to us, for this task force, they couldn't do it. And they just stalled it out. That's how frightened they are about what's getting people to peek under, right, under the covers, about what, under the, yeah, under the hood, basically, of what's going on there. They don't want it to happen. It's very murky. It's a crime that affects huge numbers of 50% plus of the population. It's something that's not talked about anywhere enough. So we're going to go into this article. Okay. From the New York Times. The police investigation lasted months, but when the case reached the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, the Cy Vance, who basically dropped charges originally against um, Harvey Weinstein and then cut a sweetheart deal, I think it's later on in this. You're going to be shocked, but okay. Um... Manhattan District Attorney's Office prosecutors quickly declined to bring charges, records show. It would be seven more months before, um, I'm not going to say her name, um, the victim or the survivor got an explanation. That's right. Drop charges don't tell the survivor. The reason they don't want to tell them is because they don't want the survivor going to the media. And also, they don't want to have to tell, they don't want to have to articulate why they're not prosecuting. Because a lot of the times, as research has shown, it's a lot of non or extra legal or non-legal factors. How were you dressed? How did you act? Were you drinking? Did you smoke marijuana or do some other drug? Because if you did any of that, that of course means you, you, you called, um, you, you were looking to get assaulted. There's a question that underlies all of this, which is what is the prosecutor's responsibility when it comes to sexual assault cases? Is it to only prosecute cases they're pretty darn sure they can get a conviction in? Or should they prosecute cases where they have absolute faith in the credibility of the survivor, they have absolute faith that the incident happened, and it's less than certain they will get a conviction? 
and sometimes significantly less than certain they will get a conviction. What should they do? In Cook County, at least previous to Fox, but maybe even with Fox, you, the, the cops have to go seek felony review. So they got to get permission to file felony charges for rape charges or sexual assault charges, aggravated criminal sexual assault in Illinois. They got to get permission. So in the cases that get denied, and a lot of them get denied, often the cops would, because the cops can press misdemeanor charges directly. They don't have to get permission. So they would file misdemeanor charges. And then they'd go to court, and it would be a trial on the misdemeanor charges, even though what the victim is describing, the act, the the harm that was brought to her, the, the actions of the defendant were felony. Everyone knows what's going on there. For some reason, the misdemeanor prosecutor believed her, but felony review didn't, or they didn't think they could win, but misdemeanor thought they could win. It's kind of strange. So what is the prosecutor's responsibility? It's really an interesting conversation. I don't think that's one we nearly have enough. I know the Violence Against Women organizations try to push it, that conversation, but it does not get into the media where it deserves to be so that there could be a, a more robust public conversation about this. Let's go back to the article. Most New York City prosecutors' offices rejected a greater percentage of sex crime cases in 2019, the last year for which there was reliable data is available, than they did roughly a decade earlier before the case against Harvey Weinstein touched off on national reckoning. Some civil rights lawyers or defense attorneys like, that's great. We need more cases out of the system. I'm not 100% sure that's the right thing. I don't want someone, I don't want anyone going to, I believe in let one guilty man go free rather than, you know, or let 10 guilty men go free rather than wrongly imprison someone who didn't do anything. And I'm not sure imprisoning someone at all for it, for most things makes sense. But it's complicated, especially when you're still talking about a vast majority of male workforce in the police, in policing, and the vast majority of survivors being female. And I think there is some research to show that women, having women cops has not changed that percentage. I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think they're on the whole found to be that much more sympathetic to female survivors than, than male cops are. Once again, yes, diversity for yes. I mean, if a male, if a male can treat a victim horribly or survivor horribly, then a female should be able to do that job. But when you're asking, like, we, we, we need diversity for to impact how survivors get treated, it looks like diversity may not make be the difference we all think it to be, which is what we learned 20, 30 years ago when we tried to diversify by race for the police officers. So let's get back to Mr. Vance, the New York, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office who is in the process of actually retiring. He will not run for re-election. And it's soon, actually. It's within the next six months. I think it may be November, actually, that his election is. But it is soon. All right, back to the article. Mr. Vance, who heads one of the largest and most prominent district attorney's offices in the country, has faced harsh criticism over his office handling of sex crimes, including the 2015 investigation of Mr. Weinstein, the former Hollywood producer who was convicted last year of rape and sexual assault, and the no-jail plea deal for a 2016, oh, I'm sorry, 
no jail plea deal in 2016 for a Columbia University gynecologist accused of molesting dozens of patients. I'm going to guess that that gynecologist was white. I'm just taking a guess. I have no idea. Let's continue. Though the number of rape reports made to the police jumped around 20% after Master Weinstein's behavior was exposed, it is difficult to determine how strong or weak those additional cases were. The number of cases closed by Manhattan District Manhattan prosecutors by winning convictions, dropping the cases, or securing pleas or lesser charges has not deviated much each year from the average over the past decade. So more survivors came forward. And we know there's a lot. Um, if you look at the um, National Crime Victimization Study 10, 15 years ago, it was believed that one out of every 10 cases, 10 assaults, got reported to the police. So there was a lot of cases that could, could come forward from the police, right, that weren't. But the rate at which they, they approved cases didn't change. Because you know why? The elements needed for them to prosecute, the level hadn't changed. Even though they screwed up Weinstein, they gave this Columbia gynecologist the deal of a lifetime, it seems. What did they learn? What changed? Nothing, it seems. Nothing. Now, yes, we don't know. Maybe, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, but maybe only survivors came forward that didn't have strong cases or they were all lying. I don't know. I doubt it. Data doesn't seem to support that. Now, for me... I think prosecutors and pro cops and prosecutors, if a cop decides to not pursue charges in a case, they should have to explain why in written and write available to available to the survivor or the victim of the crime and publicly available or a written version that was publicly available. So we could track their reasons, right? Okay, I continue. Let's continue. The experience of women like her name. Uh, I'm not going to read her name. Even though it's in the New York Times, there's no reason for me to do it. The experiences of women like her raise questions of prosecutors like Mr. Bragg and lawmakers who have been reconsidering New York's rape laws. How should prosecutors approach cases where victims' accounts are credible but may be difficult to prove in court? Should the state's laws make con conviction in such cases easier to win? And how should the criminal justice system balance the rights of the accused and a modern understanding of sexual violence? That last paragraph is vital, but we're not having that conversation. I'm not so sure you even have to go to the point of where you're making convictions easier to get. That scares me and seems to be a slippery slope that we don't want to go down. I know too many people have gotten off. I've met people who have gotten off of Illinois' death row. So I'm not sure we need that. However, what is the job of the prosecutor? Is it their responsibility to prosecute cases that need to be prosecuted, regardless of their likelihood of winning? Or is it their job only to take cases they're really likely to win? That's a very serious question and a discussion that needs to be had. And because for the most part, our media is so shallow, it's not a conversation we're going to have. Okay, let's move on to our last segment of the night.
we'll get the mayor's office on Wednesday. This is a editorial in the Hill from Nick Turner, who is now the executive director of the Vera Institute. And for full disclosure, I was an intern, one of the oldest in history, about 15 years ago. Uh, while in grad school, I'm pursuing my master's in grad school. So I met Nick. I know Nick a very little bit. I doubt he would have any memory of my existence in his life. But hey, I just wanted to be honest. Okay. The title of this op-ed op is, By Depending on Police, Biden's Gun Violence Plan Will Not Make Communities Safer. No, it will not. But Joe can't help it. So let's get to this. Let's get to the op-ed. The Biden administration recently announced a federal strategy to address the rise of gun violence that grew during the COVID-19 pandemic. The primary recommendation is for state and local governments to use American Rescue funding to hire police officers. Boo, Joe can't help it. Although the plan does mention the funding can be used to support community violence intervention programs, summer employment opportunities, and community-based services, it fails to recognize that police are amply funded and that the adding police will not make us safer. The science shows it, baby. Community violence interventions are woefully under-resourced and urging investment in police to respond to crimes after the fact results in missed opportunities to present, I mean, to prevent violence. Yes, Biden loves cops. He loves it. It was good for him in 1994 with the Violent Crime and Control Act. He was going to do it now. That's his thing. That's his jam. You can't get him off of it. Centrist slash conservative Democrats like Biden can't get enough of the cops. They love them. And on top of it, as long as he keeps hiring more, he's hoping to get the FOP's votes. So, the rollout of the Biden plan, the article continues, the rollout of the Biden plan neglected to recognize the stressors of COVID-19 beyond economic loss. Communities that are under stress from years of disinvestment and systemic racism encountered widespread loss of life, debilitating illness, and the loss of connections and relationships that can keep violence at bay. These disruptions in relationships can create aftershocks in the health of communities, which make current situation different, which makes the current situation different from the economic recession of 2008, when gun violence rates did not increase. Yes, and honestly, ladies and gentlemen, criminologists as a whole were shocked that the violence didn't gun violence and violence in general, crime in general did not ha see a massive increase in 2008 in line with the, the recession or depression we had then. Well, we know why. No, no, we don't. We don't really know why. Every, you know, every um, criminologist trying to make a name for themselves has got it and understands it and knows it. They don't. They don't have a clue why it didn't happen. Right. This is different. Because if the economic instability of 08 was bad, what you got, you got multipliers here because you have economic instability, health instability, housing instability. Then you have the, the fear of the virus. Then you have black and brown communities, inner city underserved communities hit the hardest by the virus. They have the worst access to healthcare, no insurance. It just compounds everything. That's why things are so bad now. Um, and trying to lay it on, you could just all be solved by police, which is Biden is what Biden is mostly doing, um, is pretty sad, as Mr. Turner is pointing out. Let's get back to the last piece in the article. 
The pandemic laid bare chronic and systemic disinvestment in communities that, been, that are being hit the hardest by increased violence. Our investment in policing has not produced public safety, especially in black and, black and brown communities. And we cannot expect more of the same to deliver different results. Instead, at all levels of government, we have the opportunity to adopt proven community-based solutions and prevent further gun violence. This is a strategy that Biden administration should champion so that people are truly safe from crime. Nope. I mean, first of all, Nick's right, 100%. The fact that you're going to get Biden to do that, un impossible. Never. Never. It is not his jam. It's not his thing. He's a conservative Democrat. His thing is to do what will ever get him another term in office. And he thinks by giving them more police, he'll win some of the conservative vote. And that to him, that's more important than getting, like making real change in these communities. He's not a change maker. He's the exact opposite of a change maker. He's the status quo guy. Slightly different than what a mainstream Republican would do, but only within a certain limit. That's all Biden's good for. He's a hell of a lot better than Trump, but don't toss him to be good. He's good compared to the lowest, worst, most scumbaggy, corrupt president we've ever had in our entire lives. Entire country, probably. That doesn't make Biden like some kind of left-wing left uh, super champion of the poor. He is not that. And his plan to put more cops on the street is just going to put more black or brown people in prison and extend the school to pipeline, um, school to prison pipeline issues. It's going to increase police violence on the streets. Uh, it, it just, it is not, it just rinse and repeat, like I said with Lori Lightfoot in the Grising interview. It's rinse repeat with Joe. This is nothing new from him. We should have expected this. It's sad, but that's what we got. But it was better than the alternative, not in the primary, but in the general. It was obviously better. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Once again, Day of Action, August 12th, cjpnation.org or info at chicagojustice.org or hit us up on any of the platforms you're watching us now and we will get you involved. Um, I have one more show, one more live show on Wednesday. And then I am off for about 10 days, first vacation in 20 months. And, um, but I am going to be playing some of our, uh, we will have a show up for those month that for Friday, then Monday, Wednesday, Friday of next week. Um, we're going to start playing some of our best, most viewed um, shows. And then I'll be back with you on the 16th for one show. And then I'm heading um, to go see my family in Chicago for a week. And there are going to be more um, of our greatest, um, greatest shows will be going from there. And as I've been reminded, uh, reminded I believe, by one of my uh, volunteers, links in the bios of all our social media. Go um, for the day of action. Go do it. Thank you so much, everyone. I will see you Wednesday at 530